Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc, the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Do you have some big expenses in the near future? Maybe you're moving, applying to residency or fellowship, fixing up your car or home, or starting a new practice. Doc2Doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, residents, and medical students, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. Check out Dr. Doc's personal loan options at drdoclending.com slash DaVinci. Hey everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm honored this week to be joined by Austin Poole, who is a partner at a venture capital firm here in Atlanta, actually, BIP uh, Venture Partners. So Austin, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Awesome. So maybe I gave you a very brief intro. Maybe give us a little bit of background on how you got to where you are today, what kind of experience you had and uh, what kind of led to your current role. Yeah, no. So my background's primarily on the uh, finance and investing side. Got my start on the investing side, uh, running a quantitative trading uh, strategy ways back. And uh, that that's really what kind of whetted my appetite in terms of uh, investing uh, as a, as a profession. And then from there, it kind of went down a couple of different paths. I spent some time at a uh, uh, a uh, early stage technology company on the sales and business development role and sales and de- business development role. And uh, that's actually how I originally came in contact with BIP. Um, they were the primary investor in that uh, business. And I met the founding partner here uh, through um, through the board function there. Um, ultimately went back into the financial services side and spent um, some time at a proprietary credit shop um, where we put together uh, specialized debt products for um, private equity roll-ups and such. Um, ultimately, uh, that got a little repetitive and tiring. Um, and it's not, it's not fun to strap businesses down with onerous amounts of debt. Um, it's much more built, much more fun building them. Um, and so I was looking to get back onto that side of the thing on that side of things, wanting to get back into growth and, you know, focusing on upside and, you know, kind of everybody partaking in that upside. And that led me kind of back either going down into the, um, startup world, or um, kind of taking on an investing role that focused on that end of the market. At that point in time, BIP um, was really trying to move from uh, kind of this traditional kind of just, you know, fund kind of format into, you know, more of an institutional firm. Um, And uh, I was actually, I was actually supposed to be taking a role somewhere else. And I'd circled back to Mark, our founding partner here, Mark Buffington, and uh, just to kind of circle back and say, hey, going to work with these guys, you know, what do you think? Um, and uh, that was supposed to be like a 15 minute. Um, oh, yeah, those guys are great. You know, good luck. 
um, that turned into like a <laughs> that turned into like a couple hour conversation about his vision for where he was you know taking BIP and and I was I was sold by the end of the call and it was uh perfect it was like the confluence of the two things I love right um I really like the environment of an early stage business um, but I really do love the investing side of things as well and so we've grown from I think we had maybe seven folks um at that point in time we've got about I think 45 heads on our team now. Um, and so the last seven years have been uh, a wild and chaotic ride. Um, and so uh, it's been funny because it, it does create moments in time where we can, you know, uh, we can step into the shoes of some of the folks that we partner with, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, having gone through some of the growing pains in the last, uh, last 40, four or five years. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's kind of how I, I landed in the seat. Um, I actually don't have a healthcare background. I've been focused on it um, for seven years and find it um, morbidly interesting uh, on on a variety of uh, a variety of ways. Um, but yeah, that's that's how I how I landed here. Yeah, that's really interesting that you uh, you kind of started yourself on the on the startup side of things and then kind of ended up on the investment side. I'm always curious, like, do you feel like that gives you a different or I don't want to say better, but maybe like a unique perspective versus someone who just maybe rose up just purely on the investment side of things? And I guess if so, how, how so? So just to be clear, I I'd say most of my, most of my professional experience has been on the investing side. The okay. time I spent um, with that technology company was, you know, it, it's small relative to the time I've spent on the investing side. So I don't want to, I don't want to miss uh, misrepresent myself there. I, I, and so that's, it's a really common question, right? Like, this background versus that background, right? Sure, right. sure. Um, I think there's gives and takes on both. Um, I think, you know, former operators definitely have, they're going to have the experience of having experienced a lot of the emotions um, and kind of the sticky, not so great people stuff, right? That you, that you go through um, in an early business. And, you know, when you're, you're staring your cash out date 13 weeks out, you know, like, so th- there's, there's definitely a level of understanding of what the individual is going through that I definitely think they have. And then, you know, usually somebody, uh, somebody will have some sort of functional expertise, right. As an operator. Um, and so they can always, they'll have that lens that kind of flip down. I always think of it as, you know, different, different purviews, right. Um, as to, you know, as to w- what something is, right. You're looking at an object, you're only seeing 15 degrees, of that object max. Um, and it's completely biased based off of what your experiences are. And so, no, I I would say my perspective definitely is more of someone that has spent their time on the investing side. Um, I think, you know, don't have, don't have the level of, you know, uh, uh, or the experience of having gone through, you know, in the trenches, right. You know, day to day, um, decision-making, um, but I think to me, there's gives and takes on both sides of it. Um, somebody that's been investing, I think somebody that's good at investing is good at, um, trying to step back and identify the bias that they have, um, because they're constantly walking into a situation where like, they know, you know, I'm making a hand gesture on a podcast, but they know, you know, maybe 12 inches worth of information on, you know, something that's 20 feet deep. And, uh, 
if, in my opinion, if you're good on the investing side, you got to keep that like very much in the forefront here, you know, of how you're looking at stuff, right? Um, and really rely on kind of putting puzzle pieces together to try to help put together a picture of what you're dealing with. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Kind of um, knowing enough to to essentially be dangerous, but also, uh, you know, kind of knowing that that limitation is as well. Uh, it's, that's that's an interesting point. <laughs> yeah, it's right. It's it's knowing enough to be able to ask a question that could spark the answer in the person mm-hmm. put it to work. That's that's the way to me. If I can do that, that's that's where I feel like I'm, you know, being helpful or, you know, um, helping things move forward. I, no investor, even if even if you've sat in the operating seat, you know, for thirty years, no investor in a business is going to be able to solve a problem, right, mm-hmm. on a regular basis, right? You might be able to solve one, um, but it and it's that's because we're not in the trenches, right? And so um, we're a mile high, which gives us visibility to everything that's kind of going on, right? So we kind of get that market perspective. But even if you're somebody that sat in the seat before, you're not sitting in that seat right, right. now. Right. Um, and I think anybody that's investing, regardless of background, has to keep that that very much at the forefront of you know how they're how they're viewing the world or that particular uh, problem. Yeah, I think that's a good point, especially about from the operator perspective that you're not you're not the operator anymore. I think that's that's an interesting point. So I guess along the lines of healthcare, what, like what type of investments are you like focused on or are you most excited about? Um, and I guess, how do you go about picking, like, how do you, you, I'm sure you, I can't imagine how many ideas and business plans you get sent. Like, I guess, how do you pick your, your, the ones you go with? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think somebody was just asking us the other day. I think me and my team will meet, like sit down for like a 30 plus minute call on average. We're doing about 400 meetings a year. Um, and, um, and, but back to your question, um, you know, so I'll, I'll, I'll start broad. Um, we kind of bucket, you know, healthcare is huge, right? I mean, U S healthcare systems, like, I don't, I haven't looked this up in probably like four or five years, but it's gotta be, you know, a top 20 economy in the world. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Just, just our healthcare sector. Um, and so we, we break it into kind of three, three broad silos first. So healthcare IT um, which is, you know, pure software, um, or maybe it's a communications platform or data analytics platform, but something with software margins, um, and, uh, uh, could be a clinical workflow, administrative workflow, like I said, data analytics platform, et cetera. Um, and then, um, tech enabled services. Um, so our, our firm, we won't, that's, we're not going to, we're not the group that's going to necessarily go like try to buy a bunch of, you know, uh, dental practices or uh, that's not really our shtick. Um, but we do like tech enabled services, right? The healthcare IT market is, you know, again, maybe, you know, X big. The healthcare services market is, you know, 100, 1000 X, whatever the healthcare IT, because, you know, if you're selling IT software, if you're selling software, right? there's only so many uh, healthcare organizations to buy it from you. Whereas the services that are rendered as, you know, probably four or five, six, like four or $5 trillion in healthcare services every year. Right. Um, so technical services for us, we're looking for, you know, groups that are coming up with, you know, kind of novel care delivery models, care coordination, um, stuff of that nature, or maybe it's, maybe it is kind of an IT solution, but it has kind of like a services wrapper around it. Um, I'm a big believer that 
you know, healthcare at its core is human. And um, in order to get somebody to engage, like there has to be some sort of human element to it. Um, so tech-enabled services in the last vertical or the last kind of, you know, the way we chunk it out is uh, pharma services. Um, we don't invest in molecules or devices, but we're really interested in kind of the stakeholders in the ecosystems around the development, research, distribution, and commercialization of those um, of those uh, therapies and devices. Um, and so that's kind of the at the highest, most level kind of the big buckets we look at. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess a quick question I, I'm curious from your standpoint is like, I feel like there's certain healthcare companies that are probably not a good fit for venture capital money, like like an early stage device or drug company. Would, would you, I've heard other people say things like that. Would you agree with that? Are there, like, I guess, um, just because of the funding cycle and things like that? Yeah. So I think it just depends. So like, you know, so I, our healthcare for us is our, is it's our largest vertical for a whole firm, but we invest outside healthcare too. The overarching, you know, what fits in our bucket is B2B software and tech-enabled services, right? And so that is why like a device or a molecule is not really a good fit for us. It's because we're focused on a business model. Um, And there are absolutely venture capital firms, not, and I unfortunately I couldn't give you like a long list because we don't interact with them a ton, but I know that there's a fair number of them out there. There are funds that invest in molecules and devices. They specialize in it, right? Mm -hmm. Which I feel like you have to. Um, mm-hmm. you know, to, to understand, like you said, the funding cycles that are required, the regulatory around it, distribution after you get through regulatory, like that's, that's like a whole nother ball of wax, you know, uh, <laughs> that I, I couldn't, I couldn't begin to unpack. Um, there's plenty of fat to chew on with, you know, regular old healthcare services and, uh, technology. Um, but, uh, but you know, that it's definitely out there. I, I will say, you know, stuff that's not a fit for venture capital funding. Right. Venture capital is kind of based around this concept of like, you know, very high and persistent growth rates. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain business models that don't fit that. The one that, you know, the thing that a lot of people look to is like gross margin. Right. Um, is is one of the indicators of like, is this business something that could be, you know, really benefit from venture capital, which all venture capital is, is capital that, you know, it's basically capital that allows you to grow the way your balance sheet wouldn't let you. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in the last three years, it's gotten perverted into like something completely different sometimes um, where it's like, you know, it's uh, constant uh, transfusions of cash to keep the patient alive on the table. Um, right. that's a business model that works. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've seen a, we've seen a little bit of that. Um, but, you know, at its core, that's what it's supposed to be, right? You have a business model that allows for really high investment in sales and marketing because you have 80, 90% gross margins. If you're talking about software, that means 90% of every dollar of what you sell falls through to your operating expenses, which could be reinvested in sales and marketing, could be reinvested in further product development. And that's why those business models tend to attract venture capital is because it kind of creates this like flywheel effect of the more you sell, the more you can sell. Um, And so if you get, if you get the gross margins of a business, you know, start to get below, you know, 50%, it starts to get a little tougher, right? It's not to say it can't happen, but it'd be really hard to grow, you know, a 20, 25% 
pure services business at the rate required by a venture capital firm, just by the nature of you only get 25 cents of every dollar. And that has to cover sales, marketing. You know, if you have a product, then in that case, you probably wouldn't. But mm-hmm. all your back office, right? If it's a labor-based service, right? That yeah, goes ab- hiring, recruiting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All, yeah all that's, the- generally, that's generally it. It's like, you know, what's the gross margin? Because that's going to tell you how much money can get reinvested in the business. Sure, sure. No, that makes sense. I'm curious, you know, and maybe you may want to give us, you know, an example or two, like, what are some companies, you know, types of companies you've invested in recently that you feel like, you know, you're a firm and then it was just kind of a, you know, a home run or, or, you know, it worked out really, you know, really well. And I guess maybe if so, why? Um, so, ooh, um, that's, that's a, that's a good question. So I can talk about a few things that we invest in first and then sure. what makes a good, a good partnership for us second. So I'll forget that by the time I finish telling you about the businesses. So remind me. Sure. Uh, but uh, some stuff that we've done recently, I so, and I'll I'll talk more broadly. But the you know two things that are really big for me right now are access to care, um, with access being like you know purposely left you know and obtusely defined. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, care coordination. Um, I'm a big believer that the level of medicine that's practiced in this country is ridiculously high. <laughs> I don't care where where you're looking, you know, if you were to force rank all all of our healthcare providers in the country, right? You could go down into the bottom, the bottom quartile. They're practicing very high level of medicine. Um, and so, okay, if you know, if we still have these, you know, these trends that we don't like and you know, the costs go up every year and all the stuff that we hear, right? It, it is not the level, it's not the medicine that's being practiced. Mm-hmm. Like like at least that's that's I mean, and I have I have an industrial and systems engineering background. And so I, I always kind of take this like systems approach to look at stuff. Mm-hmm. I, it's not the medicine that's being practiced. It's I, I think it has a lot more to do with like when, where, how, who. Um, and and that part, right, it's not medicine. That's that's a logistics and mm-hmm. it's a business problem like any other industry has to solve. Um, and so I really like I like business models that are looking at, you know, how do we further enable our, our healthcare providers as opposed to like basically creating a new way of doing it or disintermediating like that, that to me is not, that's, that's mart at best, that's marginal gains um, versus, you know, kind of the stuff that, you know, really gets me going is, you know, really moving the needle on things. So, you know, just to give you a couple of businesses, there's a business that um, we partnered with uh, about a little over two years ago now um, up in Minneapolis called Healthy Med. Um, they're focused on the Medicaid special needs and waiver population. Um, so these are folks that are usually dealing with like a debilitating, um, health condition. Um, but they're in that 18 to 64 age range primarily. Um, there's no dual eligible, you know, where like, you know, the reimbursement kind of gets bumped up. Um, it's straight Medicaid and, and because of the illnesses, um, and the, and, uh, the conditions these folks are dealing with. They're not very mobile, um, so they don't really have a good way of accessing the healthcare system. You know, in a brick and mortar type setting, the reimbursement's not great, so you're not going to get somebody to come out to them because it doesn't work. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of business doing that, um, and so they've they've come up with a really interesting kind of solution to bring uh, to really 
bring the healthcare system to these folks, but not in acute manner. There's been a lot of talk about hospital at home. Um, I, that's great. I think it has definitely has a place, but like, ideally, like, you know, you don't want it. You don't want somebody to get to the acute setting. Like that's, I mean, it should be our goal that they don't, things don't get to the point that they're acute. Mm-hmm. And so they take, you know, the, their approach is called clinic at home. The idea is basically just to tighten the feedback loop, right. That these sure. folks with the healthcare system so that, you know, the first time that we're seeing them in six months isn't, you know, in the ER um, or, or in a hospital or, you know, even worse, you know, institutionalization. And so that there, that I like that a lot because there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of folks that are focused on straight Medicaid right now. The dual eligible population is getting a lot of attention, which I think is great. Right. Um, sure. But uh, that, that's an area. Then uh, try to pick another one off the top of my head. Uh, we've got another business in our portfolio. This has been, uh, I think we originally invested in 2015 or 26, 2016, I think. Oh, wow. A company called Trella Health. Um, and uh, amazing story. Uh, founder basically was like uh, soliciting CMS to you know provide him access to the, uh, I think it's called the Chronic Disease Warehouse. It's basically this super large data set um, of every claim that's run through Medicare. And he ended up building a software solution around that uh, to uh, uh, basically create kind of care path optimization, right? The idea that mm-hmm. like, you know, okay, so somebody somebody had presents into the you know, hospital with some sort of condition or they're in for a procedure maybe, um, and then they're getting discharged into the post-acute setting, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, the idea that like, you know, uh, this home health provider isn't the exact same as the, you know, home health A isn't the exact same as home health B. Right? Sure. That was kind of like the simple premise initially. And so it's like, okay, hey, Austin just had, you know, some sort of cardiac procedure. Okay. Home health A has a, you know, rehospitalization or a readmission rate of X on somebody that has the profile of Austin. Um, and then home health B has a rehospitalization or a readmission rate of X minus Y for that same condition. Right? Okay. I should send them to B, right? Sure. Sure. Um, so basically looking at how we can kind of optimize an individual's path through the system, recognizing that, you know, different folks and different organizations are going to do better with certain, certain things. Right. Um, not, not a crazy thought. Um, at, at the, uh, it's, you know, I, I wouldn't take my Subaru to the BM, BMW, uh, or European, uh, you know, mechanic. Right. Sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, so th- those are kind of two examples. And I, I'd say, where do we partner well, um, or who's a good fit for us? So we like to partner early, um, in, in a business's life cycle early for us. It, you know, you'll hear a lot of people say, Oh, where did we go early, early for us is, you know, less than $10 million of software revenue, less than $25 million of services. And um, we'll go as early as you can go. Um, I wouldn't say that we do a ton of, we definitely are not a group that's doing a lot of like, you know, pre-revenue stuff by any means. Uh, Have we done it? Yes. I can't say that we can't or that we won't, um, but it's not, you know, it's the exception, not the rule. Generally speaking, we're more kind of focused on that kind of million to five uh, million if it's software, maybe like two to 10 if it's services. Uh, where we feel like there's there's a concept with that's showing signs like kind of 
signs that are independently verifiable of product market fit, right? But we don't have a full business yet, right? Sure. We've we've got something that's been created that somebody's paying money for because um, they're finding value in it. And that's that we love getting involved at that stage, right? Um, and so from that point forward, right, it's kind of one confirming that there is product market fit and you've kind of hit the bullseye there. And then it's, okay, great. Folks want it. How are we going to get in their hands? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and so it's kind of more of like figuring out the go to market, right? Because a lot of times uh, a, you'll see a business built to, you know, the single digit millions, basically on the back of, you know, the founding team, um, you know, just being scrappy and dynamic individuals um, that doesn't scale though. Right. Sure. Um, sure. You're the only person that can sell your product or good. It's not a scalable business. doesn't mean it's not a good business. Right. Just it's not, uh, not one that's set up um, to scale, like, you know, a venture capital investment kind of needs to, right. To be successful. So that's really like where we get to, we like to get involved for the first time. And then the way our capital base is set up, you know, we can continue to be a capital partner all the way through to a company's exit. Right. We led, uh, a $200 million round for one of our companies last year. Oh, wow. Also wrote, you know, a million dollar check at the beginning of this year. Right. Mm -hmm. um, we won't, we won't, we don't do the later stuff in businesses that aren't already in our portfolio. Um, we very much like to make sure we have a really good grip on, you know, who our partners are. And, you know, like I said, right. We're going to maybe get 12 inches of knowledge. Um, over our due diligence period. And, you know, that continues to grow, especially the more we interact with the team, right. Over that period of time. And as we get more comfort there, we can continue to, you know, fund the business going forward. And that's really been a huge benefit um, to our portfolio companies. It's a little different. Um, most, most people will be like, Oh, we're a seed fund or we're a series. Mm -hmm. A fund. And that's the way venture capitals kind of been set up, not coming from the venture capital space. It never really made sense to me um, sure. as an investor. It's like, okay, so you took the risk up front. Now that things are going really well, you're not you're not going to continue to fund that <laughs> business or are you just going to do your pro rata? Um, it's, it's it's interesting, um, but uh it certainly works, right? There's a lot of a lot of funds that have made a, made great returns doing that. Um <laughs> but uh yeah, so that that's we we kind of view ourselves as longitudinal partners to to the entrepreneurs and the management teams that we uh, partner up with. It's really cool. A couple of interesting things you made there is is the one that like companies involved with. It sounds like you've been involved with a few companies that are kind of like wanting to be more like proactive healthcare rather than you know the reactive healthcare. And I think you know like our our mutual connection Ian over at Carew Health is you know definitely you know a big proponent of that and working on that as well. Um, I think that's uh, a really interesting way because as you see, like you mentioned, you know we see it on the hospital and like these patients they come into the ER. It's just not good medicine. Not only is it not good cost effectiveness. It's just not good medicine to be so reactive and all these ER visits and things. So I think I think I think you can make really significant, you know, benefits to the healthcare system by, you know, really being a champion for these types of companies. And and you know, one of the things that as I actually have a question for you is like, yeah, as a as a as a physician, as a healthcare professional, like it seems to me the way that the system's set up today it's basically forcing you to be reactive too, because you're not the way, you know, the way everything's kind of orchestrated, you're having to wait for somebody to show mm -hmm. up, right? You're not, a, you don't, you're not afforded the time to, 
you know, kind of proactively be, whether it's, you know, actual, you know, face-to-face interaction or not, mm-hmm. uh, that, that seems really tough. We're starting to see more models that are trying to shift to that and cruise, cruise a great example of that, right? Trying to basically bring value-based care to the, you know, the cardiac, cardiac specialty. Um, but it, and so like one of the things that I'm always reading about, cause all I do is read, um, mm-hmm. all the trends and the things, right. And then I ask, try to find folks like you and ask you questions. But <laughs> we have this like, you know, physician burnout and it's just really broader than just physicians, a healthcare professional burnout. Right. And, um, and, and, um, it's one of those things going back to what I said earlier that kind of influences where we look, you know, I think we practice a high level of medicine. I also feel like the, you know, the average healthcare professional is asked to do way more than practice medicine, which is what that individual has expressed an interest in doing, right? Sure. All this other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I'm curious as to, you know, how you might see things develop over time or if if you're hopeful that something will change. Because that when I read the trends that are in place around burnout, it scares the heck out of me. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, you know, and so it's now it's become something that I'm always thinking about when we're evaluating something. I'm like, okay, is this going to is this going to take an administrative or logistical or you know, fill in the blank with some other like business action item off of the physician or the healthcare provider's plate and allow them to focus more time doing you know what they theoretically want to be doing, right? What they spent mm-hmm. you know years. <laughs> You're getting licensed and uh licensed for or what what do you what are you what are your thoughts on that yeah and no, i think that's a really interesting point that you know in the old days and kind of the golden years of medicine it was just practicing medicine and not much else and now with the it's funny like the emr has been kind of this great advancement but also this great curse in some ways because it's as i'm sure you're aware the level of documentation these days is just through the roof so i think i mean that's just one small example of like innovations that help cut down documentation or make it more efficient. And then I think a lot of the, you know, the solutions you're talking about were helping with the workflow, helping take necessary, but burdensome tasks off of physicians and helping them, you know, focus more on the patient and things like that. I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's a huge contributor to burnout. I mean, it, obviously there's burnout's a multi-factorial process these days, but yeah, certainly being I mean, that just, you know how it is. I'm sure you have mundane tasks you have to do at your job. Like when you have to do so many mundane tasks that are so repetitive over and over again, it just drain, you know, unfortunately that on top of the things you like doing drain your energy. And so it's just only natural that I think that that's, you know, I think that, that that's what's going to happen with a lot of people. <laughs> it's just funny you say it, like, I, I, cause I was putting it exactly through that lens. Like, I was like, how do I think about my job? And there's actually mundane tasks related to my job that I love doing because they're very much what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, I could do those, you know, couldn't do them all day long, but uh, those, are, you know, I, there's some sort of joy that comes out of them. And there's stuff that's not related to investing or, you know, kind of, you know, how, you know, kind of helping our portfolio businesses grow that like, I'm like, why, why <laughs> <laughs> this wasn't in the job description. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, that is, that is very frequently, uh, I think, especially in residency, when you're like, you know, you go to med school and you study science all these years and you're like, wait, I have to do, in addition to all this, I like clinical work, I have to do all of this as well. And yeah. it's kind of like an eye-opening thing, like that first year of residency. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, no, we're grateful there's there's people like you out there helping bring these solutions forward because I, I think it will help. I think there, we have to do something. And so I think you can't, we can't just keep operating at the the status quo. There's got to be 
And fortunately, I mean, I think it provides a lot of room for innovation. It provides a lot of room for, you know, companies to do innovative things and, and really make a difference. I, you know, one of the things that's caught my eye, like, cause there's, yeah, there's like the clinical workflow stuff and like there's transcription things and those, I think, I imagine those are helpful once they've been adopted. Right. There's always that kind of like hump you gotta get over. Like, yeah. I hate when I have to get a new cell phone. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but I wouldn't call them like, you know, sea changes or like major like seismic shifts. Something that that's starting to crop up that's like really interesting to me is um, kind of rethinking payment models, mm-hmm. uh, specifically around you know cutting insurance like the you know traditional insurance out of it, right? And you see, I'm, I don't know if you've come across a lot of these, but like direct primary care, yeah, mm-hmm. is, has gotten popular and. You know, the I know a few I know a few uh, uh, physicians that that are operating um, with those models, and it's it's you know it's great, right? It mm-hmm. it completely kind of reshifts the balance of to use your words, mundane tasking versus like you know why did they bother you know going through everything you have to go through to get licensed, right? Mm-hmm. Back towards you know being able to focus on patient care and. Um, practicing medicine and uh and I'm, so i'm curious i haven't seen a lot of a lot of that outside of primary care yet right could you could you do that in a specialty like i don't i don't know like how but i think because there's so many folks that are there's a lot of interested parties in figuring out more efficient models right mm-hmm. and so i'm um, that's something that i'd be curious to see is if that model that seems to be working at least for the doctors and for the patients right mm-hmm. so they're on on you know as a as a consumer of direct primary care they love it yeah um, yeah and um so it seems to be working for them and so it's like can you find can you find other situations like that to kind of really change the paradigm um that 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 type of stuff excites me yeah no that's really interesting i mean i think i've heard of examples i mean there's obviously like you know, the cosmetic surgery, plastic surgery, that's been doing that kind of stuff for a long time. But I think even within that, there's, um, I think if it's especially that has to be very hospital based, like a a great example would be like interventional cardiology where they have, you know, putting stents and patients with heart attacks where they're dependent on an ER. But if you're someone like, like a hand surgeon where you do a lot of outpatient procedures, you probably could, I don't know all the complexities of billing for hand surgery because I don't, I don't do hands or heard hand surgery, but I just think of that, that's something that's, you know, lower acuity, you know, patients go home the same day. And we, we have a lot of those kind of cases in interventional radiology too. So I've, I've heard of, I don't know if I've heard of anyone doing just cutting insurance out, but I've heard of, of there are some procedures like vein, vein procedures. Now that I think of it where they're, you know, they're lower acuity patients kind of either refer themselves or the doctors do a great job of kind of marketing themselves. And so there's a lot more of, of, of that. And the, the physicians I've heard of on different podcasts and read about that do that, they're very satisfied with it for a lot of the same reasons you mentioned in primary care. They're, you know, they're doing procedures all day. They're focused on patient care. They don't have to worry about fighting with insurance companies or figuring out things are going to get, it's a very simple transaction in a way. (laughs) One of the, one of the areas that to me has been a hotbed for kind of rethinking payment models is um, self-insured employers, right? So really large, Mm -hmm. Uh, really large corporations, right, where they're on the hook for their costs, anyways, right? Nobody's nobody's actually providing them insurance other than maybe a reinsurer, but they're on the hook for you know for everything they're spending. And so that that's been you know the last like decade that's been an awesome awesome sandbox 
to try out like a lot of these new kind of concepts around disease management. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's where I've seen some of these payment models start to crop up because you can deal with an organization, right. That has enough of a population that's centered, right. And you can deal with them directly and they're interested mm -hmm. in it because, you know, for them, you know, one of the top, top expense items on their PL is healthcare. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not what they do, right? Coke doesn't, Coca-Cola is not in the healthcare business, but guarantee it's a big line item for them. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> and so they're, they're actually, you know, those, those folks will play ball um, on trying out new stuff. And it's been, it's been cool to see the things that have come out of that. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. I'm curious, you know, as we're kind of getting towards the end here, just kind of your general advice as an investor to like the, like when someone pitches to you, like what, what are your, what do you look for? Like, I guess it, do you look, focus more on, I know a lot of investors say they focus more on the the jockey per se, or, you know, to use the horse racing analogy or the, the, the CEO or the founders, I guess, how do you look, kind of look at things? How do you kind of break down a pitch and any, any, I guess, pro tips you have on, on that? <laughs> yeah. I think the, the first thing I'd say is, you know, make do the homework to make sure that whoever you're going to for money is a good fit for what your business is. Um, and that could be in a variety of ways, right? Mm -hmm. um, that could be like, you know, like, don't like, I would not be the person to come to to talk about uh, like a cryptocurrency. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you could, you could have the best idea in the world and it's going to go, it's going to go zoom right over my head. Right. Um, and uh, and so that's, you know, make sure your audience is somebody that's going to be able to like, uh, one, understand the you know value, or at least be able to ask the right questions to understand right. the value. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and then the other thing is like the fit for the capital and the business model, like I was talking about earlier, right. Um, make sure before you go spend the time and the effort trying to raise money, make sure that you've got a business model that that where truly capital is the limiting variable because um, it's a lot of times it's not. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's that I think, you know, and it's also a question of when do you raise mm -hmm. that? I think, you know, if it's probably selling against myself a little bit, but I went out and started a business right now. My goal would be to get the business as far along as possible to being a, you know, a true business, right? For me, like until a business has shown that it has the unit economics to keep itself running without, you know, transfusions of cash, you haven't, you haven't fully escaped, you know, the gravitational pull that kills most businesses. Mm -hmm. Like get as close to that as you can, right? Because the sure I can be that, um, that there is absolutely a business here that, that, you know, then, that's that makes me a lot more confident that at least I'm not looking at a loss. Sure. Right, right now, that starts to answer questions because you know people talk about oh, mark size of the market. Okay, size of the market matters. Um, also depends on you know how you know we don't we don't base our investment strategy around you know moonshots. Um, mm -hmm. You know, for anybody that's a baseball person, right? We we play Billy Martin baseball as opposed to Billy Bean. Um, we're, we're fine hitting doubles and, you know, bunting a guy over to third. Um, we're not just up there swinging for homers. And, and so our approach, like, you know, I, 
the market needs to be big enough for us to grow a nice business and then sell it to somebody that could also grow it. But it doesn't have to be like a $50 billion market. Sure. Um, you know, there's uh, that, that's, that's not a thing, but going back to, you know, the right time and who you're talking to, the further, the closer you are to there being no doubt that this is a business, right. Mm-hmm. Then going to be able to sustain itself, you've removed a lot of risk, right. And, you know, investing when done right is a balance of risk and reward, right. right. Really appropriately assessing the risk you're taking on and appropriately making sure you're sizing your upside to what that risk is. That's it, right? It doesn't matter whether you're doing debt or equity or buying stocks in the market. Like that's what investing is. And so the further along you can move yourself off the risk, you know, on the risk spectrum to safety, then the better opportunity you have, right? Regardless of who you're talking to. Um, and by the way, the value of your business goes up when you do that. And that means you'll raise money at a higher valuation because there's less risk involved. So, but and it, I think, you know, sometimes people get, you know, a little caught up. So let me say this, when somebody's coming to me and they're talking about, you know, I focus on healthcare. It's all I do. I am not a healthcare expert. In fact, you meet one, let me know. Like <laughs> but way too much stuff going on for, in my opinion, for somebody to be truly expert on the whole thing. Yeah. In my, in the first pitch, right. A lot of people spend a lot of time talking about the uh, what they're doing and how they're doing it. Mm-hmm. I I need to really understand the problem, right? Who it impacts, how it impacts them, the cost of the impact, why this is the thing that they have to solve, why it creates a lot of value for them when they solve it. That's really important. And then understanding kind of what you're doing and how it's different from how that you know, what you're doing as a solution and how that's different from how it's being solved or addressed mm-hmm. today. Those are really important. But to be honest, like, I don't necessarily need to know how the sausage is getting made, especially <laughs> this meeting, because I'm not going to have the context to be able to understand in significant detail what, you know, what I need to know at that point, right? To be able to say, oh, you know, I, I think that's baloney. Like, right, right. <laughs> I, I always give kind of the benefit of the doubt, right? If if there's a really, really strong problem and I can see that the person really understands all the nuance around the problem. And then I understand how the solution, the solution is simple, like simple is trump card, right? Doesn't mm-hmm. mean that the solution itself is actually simple, but if it can be explained simply, mm-hmm. then I know that, okay, if I can explain, if, if some, it can be explained to me in the first time I'm hearing about it and I can get, it gets my head going up and down. Like, okay, that makes logical sense. I know that it should be fairly easy for somebody that actually understands, you know, deeply is dealing with that problem. They're definitely going to have their head going up and down, right? Sure. It takes five minutes to describe, you know, what you're doing or how it, why it's valuable. That creates, that creates a little bit of concern as to like, okay, maybe it is creating a lot of value, but we got to figure out a better way of talking about it so that, you know, when you get, when you get somebody to open the email or they just read the subject line of your email, right. You can get them to click on it and open it. Right. Sure. Especially in this day and age, you know, it's tough to get more than that on the sales front. Um, but yeah. So I think having a really crisp understanding of the problem, the solution is, is really key. And, you know, people talk about the market, right. 
I'm more interested in how somebody's segmented their market and how thoroughly they understand their market versus how big it is. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you had, you know, if you had some solution for the post-acute market, you said, Oh, the post-acute market's X big. I'd be like, okay, I bet it is. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, maybe I'll, I'll go look at that later. Um, but who are you selling to within the post-acute market? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. You're selling into hospice, home health, and sniffs. Okay. What kind of sniffs? Like, w- yeah. what's the profile of that sniff? Or you're selling into physician practice. Okay. Specialist, not specialist. Independent, employed. Mm-hmm. How many physicians? You know, a couple? 50. Like, <laughs> right. That type of thing, right? Where, where I can see, oh, wow, okay, they really understand who they're looking for because it's a heck of a lot easier to find the people you need to be talking to if you know who you're looking for. That, that's, uh, I'll stop there. I could go on for a while on that. But, <laughs> um, yeah. No, that makes it, that makes a lot of sense because I think you hear people try to kind of fast talk and get in the weeds on the technology and like how it's, you know, that's, you know, so fancy and it does, it's going to do this and do that. And that's great. And, you know, if, I've even seen as a clinician, just because a clinician likes it, it's got to fit into the whole ecosystem. It's got to fit into exactly what you're talking about, like the right market. It's got to, you know, um, solve the right problem in the right way, in a way that's not too cumbersome or confusing um, and, and be adoptable as well. You know, we've, you know, we've all seen these promising healthcare technologies that come out and they, you know, either hospitals don't use them or, you know, clinicians don't use them or both. And, uh, it, it's, it's all about, there, there's, it's much more complicated than, oh, it's a cool piece of technology and people like it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I, the thing I always try to think about is like, you know, cause you're, you're, you're a hundred percent right. The number of like software solutions or that, that, that have, that I've listened to a pitch on where I'm like, wow, that's great. <laughs> How many customers do you have? Oh, you know. Not that many. <laughs> or, oh, we've got some signed, but they haven't implemented yet. Mm. I have like the number, the count of uh, the body count for, you know, lack of adoption, really high. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> it, it makes sense. Like if somebody came into my office and said, hey, guess what? You're not allowed to use the internet anymore. You're going to use this thing. Um, <laughs> right. And that's the thing that you live on. Right. Um, Right. Or, or my email, right. Oh, instead of that, we're going to do this thing and you have to learn, relearn everything. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to be fighting that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, no, no, no. Like my email, like, is it perfect? No, but like I do my job today and you know, I, I, yeah. I show up here and I leave here and it, it works. <laughs> right. Right. Don't, yeah, don't, don't go moving my cheese. Yeah. Uh, and um, so, yeah, that that's especially in the healthcare IT side. Um, and then people like, yeah, the other thing I always that, that has been pitched a lot to me is um, stuff around AI on clinical decision support and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. um, I feel like there's definitely there's definitely, you know, that's going to be adopted in, in in ways. But one of the things that's always tough is like, okay, but how and why and th- how many other things? Somebody said this to me the other day. They're like, are you trying to sell something in a hospital system, right? And you think you're selling into this, right? And this is just this one little cog. What you don't see is that one little cog 
is tied to like 30 other activities within that hospital system. Mm-hmm. And if that cog gets pulled out, it, revi- it re- requires rewiring up 30 <laughs> things. Right. And so, yeah, you know, not to mention you're, you're, you're moving the cheese for 30 different, you know, people within that organization, the IT department's like, great. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Um, so anyways, no, hundred percent. I mean, I think, you know, it's funny you mentioned AI. That's such a hot thing right now. And, you know, there's, especially in my field of radiology, there's all, I think I've heard someone there, there's like 600 AI companies out there at some point or something like that. And we're certainly not going to have 600 AI companies, you know, 10 years from now. I'm curious, is that, uh, you know, kind of looking, you know, ahead into the future a little bit, I realize we, you don't have a crystal ball, but I guess from what you're seeing, like, are you are you guys looking much at AI type companies? Is that something that's like playing, or is that more? Do you think that's more of kind of people kind of attaching a that's like a buzzword people are attaching more so right now? Or I guess what are your thoughts on that? There's there's de- there's definitely a lot of that, like <laughs> then AI, and it's like what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I'll tell you, I don't have an artificial intelligence background, right? So it's hard for me to call you know baloney sandwich on something that somebody's telling me. Where, where I know it's going to have an impact is more in a like an operational type manner, right? Where mm-hmm. people are adopting it to accomplish something else, um, and that's so that's where like that tends to be the areas where like I'd be keen on investing in it. Is it's not that like the product is the AI, right? That seems like this arms race where you're constantly trying to like, you know, tune your algorithm, like beyond the other five people that are doing the same thing. I'm more interested again, like gets back to what I said. I have a very strong belief that like at its core, healthcare is human and that without that human piece anyways, only so much can be accomplished. Right. 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 Um, you know, the number of apps that are out there or whatever on people's phones where it's like, oh, well, this is a diabetes app. It's like, yeah, but like you got to get the person that's got diabetes to use it. (laughs) And why should they? Like, you know, and I, I have, you know, I have seen the impact of taking a pure software, you know, solution and then wrapping, you know, healthcare providers around it right um oh it's it's crazy the level mm-hmm. of engagement goes to the roof because at the end of the day like i don't trust you know i don't trust a an app with my health right, right? but if you know if dr cooper is telling me that this app is going to help me and he's engaging with the app too like okay now i now i put some because tr- my trust lies with you know the individual that's spent x many years getting licensed and you know is the person that's been treating me with whatever i'm dealing with um, for you know x many years and and so um i i think ai for me we're looking at it i'm looking at a lot as like an enabling thing right it's getting used internally i'm interested in situations like that where they're like oh well because we leverage artificial intelligence to do this we're 50% more efficient than the other group that's doing this. Right. Mm -hmm. Not, and they're using something off the shelf, right? It's not some proprietary thing that they're having to dump tons of money into to keep, um, keep the lights on. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely makes sense. 
Um, well, last thing as we wrap up here, I, I ask every guest this: when you're not doing investing uh, and working with health tech companies, what what how do you find that balance if there is any in the in this world today? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm big on balance. Um, no, I uh, I've got I've got a wife and two kids um, and a dog, and my ideal weekend is you know keeps me within about 40 feet of my grill nice, uh, and, you know, a couple of cold ones, uh, and nice. uh, hanging out. Um, now we got football season coming up, right? So yeah, we're, we're entering uh prime grilling season. So I've been making sure that, you know, doing all my preseason workouts, uh, making sure that I show up ready to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh anyways, joking, I, but that's what I like doing. I love, I love hanging out with my family and I'll get out on the golf course occasionally too. Nice. Nice. Awesome. Well, last thing here is that, you know, I want to make sure people can, uh, we'll, we'll link it in the description, but just so they can hear it, where can people, you know, connect with you and, and VIP ventures and, and, and learn more. Yeah. Um, so our website is BIP, P as in Paul ventures.vc. Um, and then that's, that's generally speaking the best way to get kind of get to us. Right. And then, um, yeah, and we're, we're in Atlanta and we spent a lot of time outside of Atlanta too. I was just in Minneapolis last week and Nashville the week before. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll be at Venture Atlanta for sure. Um, I don't nice. know if you're going to that, but you should. It's it's definitely, it's turned into like the premier kind of event for the whole Southeast. Um, nice. We've done a great job of really making Atlanta a destination. Um, so. Very cool. Very cool. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for your time. This is a really interesting conversation. Yeah, likewise. Uh, appreciate Again, appreciate you having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DaVinci Hour podcast presented by DaVinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.